Welcome to the Dream Plan Start Grow Show, where the goal is to provide you tips and tools to create and execute your business plan for success. Welcome to the Dream Plan Start Grow Show. My name is Allison Turner. I created this show to showcase other entrepreneurs on how they got started in what they do. And that's really to educate people that maybe want to start a business or have been in business, because I believe we can all learn from other people on different tips and tools that maybe has worked for someone else that you haven't tried in your business, or maybe that will work for you. Today, I have with me Charlotte Frost, who is an attorney, a speaker, an author, done multiple things. So welcome, Charla. Thank you for being with me today. Hi, Allison. Thanks for having me today. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Yeah. So I know you've been an attorney a long time. I don't even know how long, but I believe you more recently stopped working for a bigger law firm and kind of have gone out on your own. Is that correct? That is correct. Let, let me tell you a little bit about what I've done in my career and how I got to where I am currently. Uh, I started practicing law in 1987, and for more than 30 years, I did a very active national trial practice. And I saw an interview you did with our friend Craig Deswalt, and he talked about how he decided to get out of the music business after seven years of living out of a suitcase and being in a hotel all the time and never having a schedule. And imagine doing that for 30 years, because that's what I did. So just before COVID hit, I decided that I had had enough of the trial stuff. My trial professor in law school always told us that you only had a certain number of trials in you. You would wake up one day and say, I'm done. And I, of course, said, oh, that's never going to happen to me. He's wrong about that, as with so many things. Of course, it turned out he was absolutely correct. And I woke up and went, nope. Not any more of those. So I transitioned out of the firm that I was practicing in, and uh, I've been doing uh, expert witness work. I do some settlement negotiations. I don't get anywhere near a courthouse. <laughs> I don't get anywhere near a courtroom. And I've written a book on how to develop business, uh, specifically targeted at women lawyers, hmm. although the advice is essentially the same, because as you pointed out in your introduction, businesses have a lot of things in common, and the legal business is not any different than that. But you have to know how to sell, and you have to know how to take care of clients. The legal profession does a miserable job of training people to do that. So I've sort of taken that on as my mission in what I call my retoolment because I didn't do very well at retirement. <laughs> I was bored after a couple of weeks. Uh, but I've been doing that. And in addition to that, I have a cattle ranch, uh, which my family has had cattle uh, for about five generations. Wow. So that's sort of a family business. And I've always done that. I have a small event center in Fort Towson, Oklahoma, which is where I grew up. And that was doing really well till COVID hit. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that goes long term. Uh, and I have a couple of other business ventures. So wow. my family has always been very entrepreneurial. And I ran my own firm for 25 years. And that was an interesting experience because I was an English and speech major in college. I don't do math and I didn't learn business. So uh, <laughs> the learning curve was really, really steep. Yeah. And I think even if you 
do learn those things. I mean, I got my master's in business, but did it teach me actually how to run a business? Probably not. <laughs> you know, so, you know, most of those professors I probably had in school were PhD professors that learned, but maybe I couldn't tell you how many actually had run a business. I would guess maybe 10% had actually run their own business. And I think that's, now maybe if I'd been on the entrepreneurial track or some, you know, I was, you know, did the MBA, but then my focus was uh, sports management, which uh, the program that's down close to me in Florida has, and I've always been a big sports person. So I thought, oh, let me do that program because I still get an MBA. It's not a master's in sports management, which I knew would only really be useful in the world of sports, but at least the MBA is still the MBA title. Mm -hmm. Um, And I figured, let me get that. And then so all my sports management classes were actually people working in the field of sports. So I had some, you know, a collegiate, um, someone that worked from one of the local universities in, in the athletic department, he taught a class. I had, you know, we had different people from, you know, we had guest speakers from like the Miami Dolphins that maybe, you know, taught something, you know? So we had people actually working in the field of sports that were teaching the classes. And then we were also required to intern in the field of sports for the entire 18 months of the program. So I had several different internships. So that was the more valuable piece. But of course, again, that's also working within a structured, um, you know, thing that's already set up like a university or a sports team. And you're just going in to do one small piece of that as opposed to starting a business where all of a sudden you're doing kind of all the pieces initially until you figure out how to bring on those people. Well, and that's exactly what we did when we started the law firm. Uh, yeah. Uh, when we started the law firm, uh, my biz- long-term business partner, uh, still a very good friend of mine, was my uh, boss. And he came in one afternoon and he said, let's have a beer. It was like, it's two o'clock in the afternoon. We don't go <laughs> have a beer at two in the afternoon, but okay. Uh, so we get get to the local pub and order our beers. And I'm thinking, I wonder what in the world we're going to talk about. And he said, I'm leaving the firm. I want to start a firm. I'd like you to come with me. If you'll come with me, I'll make you a 50% partner. What do you say? And I took about 30 seconds to say, when do we start? <laughs> of course, he had clients. And I tell people he had clients, I had credit. So we were a perfect match. But for the first couple of years, I did all of the back office and business part because he had clients and I didn't yet. But it was quite a learning experience. And before I actually committed what meager funds I had at the time, I sat down and talked to an elderly friend of my dad's, who was the only lawyer I knew that I didn't work with, and asked him what he thought. He said, here's the thing. It's not that much money. You're young and you're healthy. If it's a complete disaster, you'll get another job. So it was some of the best advice I ever got. And I would say that to people now. Uh, If you are young and healthy and you want to give it a try, the worst thing that can happen is you have to look for another job. But learning how to do payroll and taxes (laughs) and all those sorts of things was a (laughs) tremendous hurdle for me. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. You know, and I think the other thing that you said in that story that you just shared 
is, you know, when your boss at the time asks you, you know, I'm going to go out on my own, start my own law firm. Do you want to join me? I'll make you 50-50 partner that you took 30 seconds. And I think that's one of the things, you know, I talk and I've experienced it myself where entrepreneurs a lot of times have that, um, was it paralysis by analysis or analysis by paralysis, whatever, but they get hung up on like weighing everything out. And obviously you weren't an entrepreneur, you were becoming an entrepreneur. So it was a little bit different and you're an attorney. So attorneys probably make decisions maybe a little quicker than some people, but, um, you know, but sometimes you have to be ready to go and kind of go all in. So it's not, because I think if you hesitate, you know, whether you're hesitating to make the decision to start the firm, which would have been what the other option, or, you know, that you're not a hundred percent committed. And I think that's, you know, that's one of the things I often stress with people is, you know, that hundred percent commitment behind the business you know, when you have plan B and I certainly worked with people and I don't ever tell people like, Hey, you should quit your job if you don't have the funds to like float this business for a few months, because obviously you need the funds to float a business. Um, so if you don't have those, you had those, but if you don't have those, you know, I certainly don't tell people like, Oh yeah, I should quit and go all in, but you still have to have the mindset, I guess, of going all in. So even if you're still working part-time, in order to get that business, you know, to fund the business and the startup, you know, you still have to have that mindset of like, okay, I'm in and I'm, I'm committed hundred percent. So it sounds like that was an easy choice for you. You know, you did ask for some advice from a family friend, you know, which obviously confirmed your decision, but it was an easy choice for you. And then you spent a couple of years doing the things that you didn't necessarily know how to do that you weren't trained to do, to make that law firm work. So you were a hundred percent or 110% in at that point. Yeah, I completely agree. You have to be in a position to make a decision. Uh, that, that old saying, he who hesitates is lost, uh, really applies in the, in the business decision-making process in sort of the backstory on the decision to go and start a new law firm. I wasn't entirely happy where I was, so I was already looking for a job, but I was assuming I was just going to go to another law firm. I, I had not contemplated the idea of opening my own shop. And while he had clients, we didn't have any money. We paid for all of the expenses for the first two or three months on my credit card with the promise that the clients were going to send us money after that. So uh, it, it was a combination of what you described, but uh, it wasn't probably from the outside. It may not have made a lot of sense, but it made sense to me. I had already figured out that I was better at being a boss than having a boss. And I was just trying to think through how was I going to manage that long term? And I think that for people who are entrepreneurial, that that concept that you want to be in charge is invigorating and not frightening. Because I was really surprised as I hired people over the years, the number of people who would say to me, I really like having a boss, whether it's you or somebody else, because you make the decisions and I don't have to. I want somebody to tell me what to do. And that's so antithetical to my personality. <laughs> right. I don't like having somebody tell me what yeah, to do. Exactly. So <laughs> if you're not someone who wants to be in charge, 
entrepreneurship's probably not for you. But if you like writing your own ticket, there's nothing like it because you have flexibility. You're going to have things that go well. You're going to have things that don't go well. You're going to make good decisions. You're going to make bad decisions. And many things are outside of your control. Uh, ultimately, the thing that did in my law firm wasn't bad decision making. It was unfortunate legislation. They passed tort reform in Texas and the client's need for my business shrunk from needing 50 lawyers, which is what we had, to barely supporting the eight that we ended up with. So you have to learn that there's feast and famine, and that's not for everyone. Some people need a comfort level. Uh, I'm a little bit more willing to fly by the seat of my pants. <laughs> and how is it, and I don't know this answer at all, since I've not been a lawyer and I haven't really talked to lawyers, like if you're one of the main partners in a law firm, you can still practice law too. I mean, obviously, I know you said you're a trial or a trial attorney. Oh, yeah. So, and there's no right. challenges being both like the kind of the boss and overseeing things and also, you know, having a, I mean, I assumed you did a lot of cases if you were a trial attorney. Yeah. It's a time management issue more than anything else. Okay. Most of the people who manage law firms are lawyers. That has changed somewhat over the last probably 15 to 20 years. And there are more professional managers really? and people who have a background in legal finance who manage the day-to-day -day business of the practice of law. The, the legal field likes to think that it's still strictly a profession and there's no business aspect to it. But that hasn't been true in our lifetimes. And I suspect even longer than that. But you still have to keep the lights on and you have to get people paid and you have to comply with labor laws and all of the things that a, an ordinary business has to comply right. with, with the overlay that as the lawyer, you're required to bring in work and do work so that you are paying for yourself as well as paying for others and managing. So it to be a manager of more than just a couple of lawyers in a law firm is a tremendous additional job. And you just have to do both of them. If, <laughs> if you're gonna yeah, I I was on the road hundreds of nights a year and wow. in trial uh 14 and 15 hours a day and then answering emails and giving instructions you know, another two or three hours a day. So it's a tremendous time commitment, but that's what any entrepreneur does. If you're the the person running the business, it's rarely an eight to five job or a nine to five job. Yeah. It's just what you do. <laughs> right. But you know, that time management piece, do you have tricks that have worked for you over the years as far as time management goes? It, it waxed and waned. I, I was better at it at some points than, than at others. It's always good to have a very good backup, someone who a good quality assistant who can sort of keep the balls moving while you try to bounce them around in the air. Uh, making sure everything's calendared, making sure that you <laughs> have some sort of a follow-up system so that you know what you've gotten done and what you haven't gotten done. Right. But for lawyers generally, but particularly for those who are doing the, the management side, you just have to stay on top of what time you have to do, what task. So uh, I 
extensively used outlook. I'm not sure that that's necessarily the best time management thing, <laughs> but it's fairly straightforward and right. simple. And you put everything on your calendar and go through and make sure that you've checked them off. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, some people time block. So that sounds similar to, you know, like you'd use a calendar and just say, okay, I'm going to do this and this time block and this and this. You, some people use checklists of, you know, certain things they need to get done each day, you know, that fall to okay. that day. And obviously it's whatever works for that person, you know, that's the important thing. Um, cause it's not going to work for everyone, you know, and different people need different, different systems and, yeah. um, whatever works for them. So now that you've kind of left this. Yes, and I used different. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say I used different systems for different aspects of it, too. Uh, in addition to the running the business part and doing the trial part, I did a tremendous amount of business development. So I did a lot of marketing. And for that, uh, I used a commercial program. It was uh, a Westlaw program at the time, and it's since sold to someone else. And I don't remember what its current name is, but it was a research program, and it saved a huge amount of time. All you needed to do was input the name of the company, and uh, it would bring up for your report on what their litigation was, who their lawyers were, who the contact people were, what their business needs were. It would give you their 10K. Uh, it would give you the most recent quarterly report on stocks if they were publicly traded. So you got, with a push of a button, a whole research packet on the people that you wanted to go and talk to. And that was tremendously useful. It wasn't cheap, but it was well worth the amount of money. And then I used an Excel spreadsheet, not anything particularly fancy, but I kept track of who I had contacted, when I had contacted them, what I had contacted them about, and what was my next step for follow-up. And I found that that worked well for me. Uh, as you know from your MBA training, it takes uh, eight useful touches to develop some sort of a relationship with either a person or a company. So it's important to be able to keep track of what you've done with them and what, whether you need to do follow-up or not. And not, not every contact is going to turn out to be a business contact at the end of the day. But at least it helps you evaluate if you're spending your time well or not. So I did that for the business development piece. For the running the business part, I used more of a checklist system uh, to make sure that end-of-the-month checks had gone out and reporting had been done and so on. And I used outside professionals for a lot of that. Uh, one of the smart things we did at the front end was we hired an outside CPA firm to do our tax reporting and all of that because neither of us knew how to do that <laughs> and it wasn't a good use of our time. Right. And we, and we used a payroll service to do payroll. And again, a little bit more expensive, but you avoid so much mm -hmm. of the regulatory problems yes. to make sure you you do compliance correctly. So that was actually well worth the money. Uh, we probably could have done it a little bit more cheaply but I don't know that we could have done it more safely. And something that I tell people when I talk to them about setting up new businesses 
is making sure you evaluate the things you're willing to take a risk on. And I'm never willing to take a risk on the IRS (laughs) or some of those regulatory agencies. I I 100% agree. I know I did payroll in-house for a long time while I was the only W-2 and then everyone else was 1099 because I could handle like, you know, doing the quarterly taxes for myself and all that wonderful stuff. But once I went to more than one W-2, I was like, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. So, so I sent it to ADP and so they handle like all of that and then all the year end reporting and all the, you know, quarterly stuff that has to go out and, you know, the money and, right. and all that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a, a good use of their time and my money. <laughs> so, and then yeah. how did you, so once you, you said it, you know, right before the pandemic hit, you decided you were done with like the trial attorney thing and wanted to change it up. So what did you, and I know you obviously had other businesses that were still going like the cattle industry and the event, the event location and other things that you were already doing, but had you at the time written, like you referenced the book that you wrote, um, to help women, uh, had you written that already or was that something you did after you retired? I had spent probably a decade doing training on marketing, mainly for women lawyers, but I did in-house training for all of our young lawyers because as I always told them, the legal profession doesn't have pension plans. So I didn't really want them to eat cat food when they got old. So I tried to train people on how to do business development, how to develop clients. So I had this huge collection of writings that I had already done. And so once I retired, I thought, I could use these. I don't know how I'll do it, but a very good friend of mine from home, uh, a guy that's probably close to 10 years older than I am, uh, had written a couple of books and I was visiting with him and I said, oh, it would really be cool to write a book. Uh, And I've been thinking about it. And he said, if you don't get started on it, you'll never finish it. I have a publisher. He teaches a how to write a book series. It starts next Monday. You're going to sign up and you'll be finished with it. I'm like, okay. Well, uh, and I did the eight week course and I didn't get finished with the book quite that quickly, but it didn't take a lot longer than that. What I did find was that all of those wonderful things I had written over the years were wonderful inspiration pieces. They did not fit together to make a book. So I took some of those concepts and then worked them into a book. But it was not as easy as I had envisioned it being. It took a whole lot more work. But I think it it worked out. It was worth it in the end. And then after I had written that book, I wanted to do in-person training and some coaching and that sort of thing because I really enjoy doing it and I think people get more out of it. My book includes worksheets so that people can use the the old pen and pencil method, which I think embeds in the brain differently than just thinking about it. Uh, but it helps to be able to sit down and talk with someone. Unfortunately, with COVID, that didn't really happen. It's sort of like my event center. Uh, COVID <laughs> was not kind to it. COVID was not no. kind to, to, to coaching. But hope springs eternal. I still hope that I, w- I will do some of that. Okay. 
Oh, that's great. And I, I mean, I think once you get through that first book, and I've not written a book, so I can't even speak for this entirely, but from what other people have told me in that have written books, you know, then it becomes easier to write that second book or, you know, you're more motivated because now you've gotten through the first book and you've seen the accomplishment, you know, so it doesn't seem so daunting of a task to write a book. Cause you know, some people you say, write a book and they're like, who me? Like, I can't write a book, <laughs> you know? So, uh, and I know since then, have you written other, I know you've written some kids books, but have you written other books that are geared towards adults as well? I haven't. I've done three children's books. Okay. Two of them have now been published. The third one is uh, pending publication in March, the Frogville Quest stories. Uh, I grew up in Frogville, Oklahoma, so that that's where I titled the books. And that's been a fun process. But I would have to agree with the sort of the evaluation that after you've done the first one, the process is not quite so daunting. So I'm planning to do a follow up book on the Power at the Table book, which is the, the name of the, the business development book, and uh, one that's a little bit less gender-specific because I think the title, which is Power at the Table, A Women's Lawyer's Guide to Gaining Clients and Control, puts people off a little bit, although some of the best feedback I've gotten has been from male readers. Uh, so I want to work a little bit more on that. And then once I've done that one, I've been kicking around an additional business topic one that I haven't quite got put in into form yet. And I'm working on yet another children's book in partnership with the Oklahoma Historical Society. The, they have a 200th anniversary coming up for the opening of the forts that were located in Oklahoma. And they want to do a big bicentennial program. And as part of that, uh, one of the things they want to focus on are the Civil War battles that were fought in Oklahoma. I didn't know there were any, and I took Oklahoma history. So we are going to use Jimmy Lane the Mule, who was an actual mule, who was uh, present at several of the Civil War battles. And I've started the manuscript on that, and I'm writing the, uh, the historical fiction from the perspective of the mules. So we'll see how it goes, but it's designed for children to get them interested in Oklahoma history. Hmm. That's interesting. So how did you decide you wanted to write a children's book? Because obviously that writing is much different than the adult writing. Uh, that, that was my publisher. Uh, after we did the business book, uh, we sat down and talked about sort of how things were. And of course, that was right at the beginning of the pandemic because we published the book in October of 2020. And as you know, there wasn't anything happening anywhere on anything. And he said, what did you think about the process? And I said, well, I found it actually very interesting. I had done journalism in college and I like to write. I think I'm a pretty good writer. And so I was thinking about what would I do next? And he said, have you ever thought about writing a children's book? And I said, well, no, I don't have children. So no, I've never thought of that. He said, well, during the pandemic, that's the only thing that's selling. So if you would like to do a children's book, uh, my team and I will be happy to work with you on that. I thought it was sort of like the uh, starting a law firm. It was like, hmm. Okay, I'll give that a try, too. Uh, so <laughs> then we were off and running. So we start, started on the trilogy of the, 
the children's books. And it, in some ways, it's in keeping with the other book because it's a female protagonist. And I got to thinking about it. I loved fairy tales as a kid. But if you think back on your fairy tales, there are lots of women victims and there are women sidekicks and there are some strong women characters, but there are very few women protagonists. Yep. So my protagonist is Lily, who turns into a frog <laughs> on her 13th birthday instead of her twin brother, who was supposed to. And then she has to go on a quest, both to turn herself back in to a regular human and to save her, her village. So wow. they've been fun. Yeah, no, sounds, that sounds fascinating. And does it actually, I know Frogville is where you grew up. So is there anything about Oklahoma in there other than the name of the city or? No. No, no. It, it's not. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, other than the uh, the name and uh, a little a little bit of, of uh, humor about it, it, it's really not based in Frogville, Oklahoma. Okay. <laughs> so you think you're going to keep? So once you watch this third book in the trilogy in March, you think you're going to keep doing other kids' books? At this point, is there a market for that at, right now? Maybe because there there. There actually is a market for it. So that, that's been good. And it gives me an opportunity to go and talk with kids and give, give a, an entree for then talking, particularly with rural kids, because where I spend a lot of time in Oklahoma is very rural. And in fact, Choctaw County, which is where uh, my ranch is located, where I grew up and where Frogville is located, is, is and has been the poorest county in Oklahoma, I guess, going back to statehood. So uh, being able to talk to children and explain to them that they really do have good options and it's about where you end up, not really where you start, that makes a difference uh, has been fun. And I think it's useful, but you need some sort of a launching pad to be able to do that. And this set of books gives me the opportunity to do that. It's a little less intimidating for the frog author, author to show up rather than the former lawyer to show up. The two very different concepts of the same person. Especially if you're going into a rural area, I'm sure. I'm sure some of them have opinions on uh, attorneys and, you know, there probably aren't as many attorneys in a rural town that, that as there are in a major city in Oklahoma. So I'm sure they have very clear <laughs> opinions, positive or negative, I, I won't say, but <laughs> opinions. That's right. Uh, there, there is some truth to that. Uh, there are plenty of lawyers everywhere. We, we seem to proliferate almost like little froglets. <laughs> so uh, there, there are a lot around. But people have a different perception of someone who is a a legal professional than they do as someone who is in the arts. And that that's true, whether you're in Frogville, Oklahoma or New York City. And then I know you also speak and you're known as a speaker. So are you speaking? Because I know you just referenced that you sometimes want that entree into like the kids at, in rural areas. And obviously that's one opportunity to speak, but I assume you also speak in the, the legal side of things as well. So what, like, 
have you always done that throughout your career and that's just something you've continued or is that something you started once you left the trial lawyer firm? I've always done speaking. I was a college debater. And I, as I say, <laughs> so old used up college debaters are always looking for an opportunity to find an audience. Uh, so I've done a significant amount of speaking over the years. The Defense Research Institute, which is rebranded as just DRI, has been a wonderful platform for me. And in fact, the first time I got to speak to DRI, I talked on the topic of jury selection, which is something I absolutely love to do. Uh, there's nothing like a hundred strangers and you've got 30 minutes to figure out who's going to be your new best friend, but it's something I enjoyed and I was good at, but not everyone likes it. And so I was asked if I would come and give a speech and it worked out that I was in the first slot on Friday morning. So, uh, after the cocktail party, which, uh, Never a good spot. And it was the same time that they were supposed to tee off for the, the golf tournament. So I was expected to have nobody in the audience. And it rained that morning. So I had 1,500 people in the audience oh, wow. to listen to me talk about jury selection. <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, uh, behind me, uh, they have these three enormous screens. So they're like football so stadium-sized screens to display my PowerPoint. <laughs> The PowerPoint didn't display. I don't know that as I'm giving the speech. Wouldn't have mattered, but I didn't know it. But instead of that, there were three football stadium size photos of me in my bright fuchsia jacket uh, for, for my speech to all 1,500 people. I still have people ask me about that. It's like, oh, yeah, I was in the audience that morning when you gave that speech. But I've done a, a lot of public speaking over time. And even during the pandemic, I've done podcasts and a lot of presentations. I do some presentations for universities and for women's groups and have done that for quite some time as well. But I enjoy doing public speaking. Uh, two weeks ago, I was in San Francisco to speak to the Association of Cal Northern California and Nevada attorney, defense attorneys on the concept of business development. So I am doing some in-person speaking now that the pandemic has sort of wound down, and I hope to do more of that. Okay. Well, that's great. And I mean, it sound, sounds like you're really good at it. And obviously, if you were a trial attorney, you like to speak. So <laughs> uh, going into the courtroom. Yeah. So how do you tie all these different pieces together? Because I know some people would find kind of all your different pieces overwhelming. And obviously, we've talked about time management and, you know, your strengths there. But you know, having a cattle farm, which obviously I'm sure you have people running, you know, having this event venue that you have, you know, you're a speaker, you might speak to law side, you might speak to kids, you have the, the book for adults, you have the books for kids, you have, so you have a lot of different pieces here. I mean, is there a theme that runs through all those? Or are you just more of a serial entrepreneur that um, loves the new challenge? I mean, how would you answer that? 
Well, adult ADD accounts for a tremendous amount of it, but uh, serial entrepreneurs is probably the better description. I've always done a myriad of, of tasks in different buckets. So the concept of keeping up with all of them is not as daunting to me as it might be to others. It's just what I do. Uh, and I still have to do time management, calendar management to ensure that I, I am able to cover my various assignments. I also do some expert witness work. So I have to make sure that I schedule things around other people's schedules because <laughs> those assignments depend on the court. And since that was my background, I'm just accustomed to the uncertainty that comes with having someone else, usually the judge or the judge's clerk, uh, in charge of your calendar. But for people who want a little bit more sedentary lifestyle, they probably wouldn't like the myriad of things that I do. It's just that's what I've always done, and right. and that's what I do. Yeah, and it, I mean, I think it also keeps things fresh. I mean, it seems it may seem overwhelming to someone looking in from the outside because you know there are a lot of different moving parts that you have to manage. But like you said, you know, it's something you've always done, and clearly, it seems like it's something you enjoy. So having things more fresh that you don't get bored. I mean, I, I have a tendency when I work for other people to get bored in jobs. So I typically have not left a job because I'm necessarily unhappy. I mean, I'm unhappy because I'm bored though. I'm not unhappy of, I mean, some I've left, but for management purposes, but for the most part, it's been like, okay, I've, I've done as far as I can go in this, you know, this particular job and there's no movement up or whatever it is. And I'm bored. So I need something different, like something that's more challenging. Um, even when I worked in the world of tennis, because I used to teach tennis and coach tennis, I always coached tennis, which was the more lucrative side of it versus the administrative side. And But I also then took on like I was I oversaw a junior program down here in Florida um, at, at this country club. So I oversaw the program, which is more administrative. And then I also taught tennis. So it was a combination of those two that made up my income. The more, the better income was clearly on just the teaching side, you know, and so unless you're a director of tennis for a country club, which is bigger money. Um, but I had no desire to do that because I didn't want the headaches of reporting to the board and all that type of thing. Um, but I can understand having kind of those different, different pieces that kind of all tie together to make you happy um, in the long run. And they do all have more of a common theme than it sounds because the, the speaking is typically tied either to the legal work that I do or to the children's books. I do a small amount of inspirational speaking. I don't find myself that inspiring. So that's never really been my my genre, but I've done uh, some college speeches on your ability to achieve and things of that nature. So I'll do that occasionally. But other than that, they thematically 
they tie together more than you would think. And I tell people, particularly as it relates to the book side, uh, if you do what I tell you to do in the business book, then you can afford to write children's books because you're never going to make any money off of them, but they're fun. And it gives you something else to do. But you need that flexibility that comes with having developed a background and a bank account that can then support some of your hobbies. We always teased my dad, he had a full-time job, he worked as a railroad engineer, uh, that he had to have a full-time job to support his cattle hobby because uh, farmers and ranchers always need an outside set of income because you just never know when the drought's gonna hit you or there's going to be some other issue. And so having that backup of something to do that gives you a more guaranteed income has always been an important aspect of, of what I was trained to do, what I grew up to do and, and what has worked well for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm, I know my mother and my aunt own a farm in Southern Indiana and it's not, it's uh, crops as opposed to cattle, but I know they talked about that uh, too, that you have to, I mean, they have farmers that farm it, so they get income off of it. But obviously, that's not my aunt was a math professor in college and my mother was a stay at home mom. But my father obviously supported her. So they both have, you know, but they're still getting income every year, depending on the year. And some's better than others. And um, <laughs> it's all dependent on, you know, whether you're getting enough rain, you're not getting rain, you know, all those types of things. Um, so I can kind of understand that, that you need that kind of backup income or, or another source of income in order to make sure you are good to go in that industry. And especially now, probably with all the, the competition from corporations and bigger, bigger entities in the farming industry. Um, it's probably even more challenging. I would, I would suspect, I don't know that for sure, but I would suspect it's more challenging for farmers, independent farmers today than it was maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago. Supply chain is the bigger issue, supply chain and energy availability. Um, As diesel has gotten so crazy Mm -hmm. expensive, uh, people forget that everything on a farm runs on diesel. So your utility costs have skyrocketed. Mm. And the concept of an electric tractor to to cut... (laughs) hay and bale hay. It's just never going to happen. It, it's it technologically not feasible. Battery. <laughs> so those are built in, yeah, built in hurdles that just uh, the, the average person doesn't think about. But again, with a legal background, I can kind of evaluate where some of those things are going and, and what they look like. But the, those are distinct challenges that are external, in some ways, almost like the the tort reform was for my legal business. They're things you just simply can't control that you have to figure out how you're going to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those things happen over and over. It doesn't matter what business you're in; right. there are always going to be external issues you have to find a way to deal with. Yeah. And I I would say that's really the commonality of the the business aspect. And the difference between being an entrepreneur and being an employee. As an employee, it may affect you, but you don't have to control for it. Mm-hmm. 
No, and I think that's true. And obviously we just experienced that in the business world for the, those of us who are business owners when that pandemic hit and people weren't, I mean, it came out of nowhere and no, I mean, most people weren't prepared for it to, or didn't anticipate it coming, you know, because it's not been in our lifetimes that it's occurred before. So, you know, it was really trying to figure out, you know, if that did hurt your income, you know, because I had clients that were hurt by it. Like I had clients in California that run flag football leagues for kids. Well, California was shut down for probably eight months or 10 months. I mean, like their leagues were completely shut down. They couldn't run them. I mean, they finally figured out, one of them finally figured out a workaround for a small piece of the league to run in a private facility because they run in parks in California and schools and everything that's controlled by the state of California. So, you know, they couldn't even run them. So like my contract with them got, you know, I decreased it because obviously they didn't need as many services at the time because they weren't able to even generate the income to bring in to pay for the services, you know? And so it was kind of a catch 22. And I, we saw a lot of restaurants that went out, especially small independent restaurants that didn't have the, the money, you know, the cash supply to back them up when they shut down, depending on which state, you know, and each state was a little bit different depending on how long things shut down and all that wonderful stuff. But um, yeah, we just experienced that. And I think, you know, as a business owner, you're right, as you have to be, you can't be prepared for what it is that's going to hit, but know that, you know, it when something does occur, because it will, whatever that is, you know, that you just have to like be like, okay, here it is. Now, like, what's the next step or what's the next best step for me to do here? Um, you know, if you have a business partner, obviously, what's the next step for us to do? So, I mean, I think you make a great point that, you know, something's always going to come up. It's just a matter of how you handle it at that point. Um, that's why one of my favorite quote that I always use is, you know, life is, what is it? It's 10%. I always get the quote wrong, and especially if I'm putting myself on the spot to say it, but it's, you know, it's, uh, life is 10 per, you know, it's like not 10%, you know, ha something to the effect of, you know, it's 90% how you handle things versus 10, you know, you have that choice on how you handle it. So, you know, you can get a bad situation and say, woe is me, woe is me, woe is me, and I can't figure anything out and I'm just going to give up. Or you can flip that coin and be like, okay, let me think outside the box. How can I generate different income or how can I do things differently or how, you know, and you have that choice when that, you know, that comes down the pipe, obviously in Texas where the tort reform changed that was maybe a little bit different where you didn't have a lot of choices <laughs> at that point, but uh, you had a choice to lay people off and unfortunately, and, and, you know, scale back. But, um, you know, but a lot of us do have the choice once we get hit with that, that situation. And um, it's really how you handle that from that point forward. That's important. Yes. And one of my favorite quotes, and I never get it right either is from men in black, that wonderful scene where Tommy Lee Jones tells uh, a young Will Smith that there's always a 
Carillion Death Star or something. There's always something that's going to kill you in 24 hours, and you always have to just be ready for it and deal with it. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of the way business is. There, there's always a, a Death Star out there or uh, an incoming plague or something, and you have to find ways to deal with them. Right. And if you're not someone who's cut out to do that, then maybe entrepreneurship isn't for you. On the other hand, if you are nimble and willing to adapt, you can usually find a workaround. It may not be the same. No. You know, my practice was not the same post-tort reform as it was pre-tort reform, right. but I was fortunate. Mm -hmm. I was one of those people who could go and try cases in other states. <laughs> I just, instead of trying cases in Texas, and I haven't tried a case in Texas in a decade or more, probably more than that. Um, I was trying cases in New York and California and Michigan and Mississippi, and I got licensed in some other states so that I could go and do something because I wasn't in a position to retire at that point. Uh, I had debts to pay. I needed to fund a retirement. I needed to do all those sorts of things. Many of my uh, contemporaries did not have that same flexibility, either because of their family circumstances or just their personalities. There were people who were not interested in getting licensed in Mississippi so you can go try a case in rural Mississippi. Uh, <laughs> but I was. And you either are set to do that or you're not. But only you will know that. But if you are geared to do that, it can be extraordinarily rewarding. I would have missed out on some of my best stories and best experiences if I had not done that post-tort reform. Now, I got to try a $5 billion bankruptcy confermation case. Wow. Now, it would have been better if we had won it, but <laughs> it, but I did get to try it. And, um, I, and, and I got a great review from the judge, which is why I didn't get fired. Uh, so there's a published opinion saying that I did a great job in trial. But those sorts of things are the next step. You just yeah. never know what's behind that door. Sometimes it's another door. Sometimes it's a, an opportunity. But you just have to be willing to to keep moving forward. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I've always done, probably will continue to do. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that moving forward motion, I mean, staying in motion is critical because I, you know, one of the things I believe we were talking about before we got started today is sometimes entrepreneurs, especially new entrepreneurs get, you know, have that paralysis and, you know, they analyze something over and over and over like, oh, should I do this? Should I do this? I, you know, they have kind of these paths you can go down and they're trying to figure out what the best, best path is. And they typically overanalyze and because they want to make the absolute right decision instead of like go and you know, if that's not the right path for some reason and you discover that two weeks down the road, you can always alter something. You can always change it. You can do something different. Um, but sometimes you lose the opportunities when you hesitate so that, you know, when you stop and you don't do anything, you sometimes lose opportunities then too. So I think that's a, that's a key point of, you know, even if you're just doing little steps to move forward, that's critical in business. You just have to make decisions. 
And like I said earlier, some of them will be good decisions. Some of them won't. But any decision is better than no decision. No, no decision is just a dead end. So I, I've always been decisive, not necessarily always right, but I, I've been willing to take those chances. Some of them have worked out and some of them haven't. But I, I treasure the ability that I, I got from my upbringing to make a decision and, and move on. And I, I find that that has held me in good sway over time. So what's next in your journey? Do you have, I mean, I know you're releasing the third book for the children's series. You're planning to write another book that ties to the um, legal book that you wrote before. Just continuing down that, these different paths on the journey. Do you have any, anything else that's coming down the pipe that we don't know about? Probably not anything you don't know about. I do want to do more speaking. I'd like I'd like to do some paid speaking. Uh, I would like to do more on the business development side. I really do think it's important to train uh, young lawyers to do business development. It is a crucial element of their long-term success, not something they learn in law school, not something that most law firms are really set up to do. And I have a tremendous amount of experience in that, and I'm willing to help train people. So I would like to do more training, and I'm working on that. I'm working with a website designer as a very good friend of mine, John Fitzpatrick, who is a very well-known national trial lawyer, chided me recently because I don't have a website. He said, people can't hire you if they can't find you. So I'm, I'm working on that. But they're really just more steps in what I'm doing. The office that I'm sitting in today is an old house that I bought and renovated. And my sister and I are using it for our Oklahoma legal office. So I have a 100-year-old business uh, building. 100-year-old building that uh, we saved and have renovated. Uh, And I'd like to do a little bit more of that. So those are things that are important to me. Finding ways to benefit my local community here because it doesn't get the amount of love and attention I think it deserves are things that I want to do. So my goal for the next five years, I'm big on five-year plans. Uh, My five-year plan is to find some ways to do uh, not necessarily community building, but uh, some community development work and some uh, industrial economic development work in my local community. So I will do some of that uh, and I'll continue to write books. Okay. I like the writing part. How big is your town where you live? Oh, uh, I think at the last census we were uh, up to a whopping 430 people oh, here. I mean, it's a tiny little town. It's a great little historic town. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it's little. Yeah. Uh, yes. My, my family has been here since 1896. Wow. My great-great-grandfather came here to help uh, build 
the railroad. He was he was a laborer here. So we we've been in the community for a very long time. Uh, Fort Towson is about 15 miles from Frogville. Uh, I'm a fourth generation Frogvillian on one side of the family and a fifth generation on the other. So this is probably where I will end my journey. But I would like to provide some worthwhile value to it while I'm here. That's interesting. Both my, well, my grandparents on my father's side who moved from Oklahoma to Florida back in the late 1920s, early 30s. So they, the house I live in, which is 97 years old. Yeah, 97 years old. um, They worked with the original owner of the house. So the original owner like had the house built, had it designed and he was retired, but he was from Ohio and this was like a second home. And he, uh, retired down here while he kind of still traveled a lot, but they, they came here to be, and I don't know if they came here first and then decided to do this. I have no idea how the two connected, but they were kind of the person that, you know, kept the house and did other errands for him. And that's what they were doing. And then when he passed away, the family didn't want the house. He didn't have, he had never married. He didn't have kids. So the family didn't want the house. So they sold it to my grandparents, but I've been trying to figure out the, you know, the whole section where my grandparents came from. I like did some work on ancestry and like, I lose track of my grandfather very quickly. Like I can't even figure out where he came from, like zero, like it's, which is a little odd to me, (laughs) but, but, uh, my grandmother, I have a pretty clear picture on, um, but she was born in like Indian Territory, Oklahoma, which now is, you know, something completely different. But mm-hmm. um, she was classified as, you know, Native American on her death certificate. And when I do ancestry DNA tests and things, I have zero Native American in me, which I'm like, hmm, that's kind of interesting. So I, I don't know if it's she was classified that because she was born in, you know, Indian Territory, Oklahoma, and that's why or what it was. But um, I've been trying to figure out the the whole Oklahoma because I have a ton of family there, but I don't. I've only been there once, and I couldn't even tell you where I went. It was in my twenties. They had like a family reunion that my father and I went to, and it was some small town. And I have to go back and see if I can track it down <laughs> what town it was because yes. There are lots of small towns in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. uh, and Oklahoma was Indian territory before 1907. Statehood was in 1907. So if she was born before 1907, yeah. Yeah, she'd be tagged as Indian territory. Yep. Yeah. Yes. So as that will be part of the introduction to the Jimmy Lane Mule book, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very cool. So as we start to wind down today... I ask this of all my guests, if there was one thing that you would share with someone that wanted to start a business, something that either you've learned along the way in your journey or something that maybe has just served you well throughout your journey that you already knew going into business for yourself, what would that one thing be? It wouldn't be anything that I knew before I started the journey because I didn't have any sort of a a business background, really. But what I would recommend is to 
read as much as you can in the business press and in business journals and things of that nature, because that's what I did. I educated myself on how to run a business. And you will learn things from doing that that you just wouldn't run into on your own, or if you did, you would do them wrong. So there's a tremendous resource out there, particularly these days. Back when we started the law firm in 1994, the internet didn't exist, or if it did, it only existed in a governmental level. So it was not easy to find those kinds of resources. But just because you don't know how to run a business doesn't mean you can't learn. If I could learn, anyone can learn. So I strongly recommend to people that they watch videos on YouTube. They, there are a lot of universities that actually provide free classes that you can go in and monitor. There, there's nothing like getting training from people who are experts in the field. And like you referenced earlier, Allison, a lot of your professors won't have run a business, but they understand the, the regulations and the structures and things that are not intuitive. So the thing that I always tell people and that was really helpful to me was to take advantage of whatever popular press there may be and read business materials. Some of them are not really all that exciting, but they really, really are important. So you're not going to figure out how the funding for your 401k program works just from osmosis. You you need to understand those things. And that comes from, from either reading or watching or talking to people that have that experience. I find that people are pretty generous with their time if you say, I'm starting a business or I have started a business and I could really use some insight. And people will typically do that for you, but you can't really do it alone. Uh, The decision-making is yours alone, but the learning part is not. And I think that's the most important thing for people who are starting a new business. Yeah. No, I think that's, that's so true. And I think we're always learning even throughout business because you know, things change. I mean, in my industry, obviously things are always changing in the, the, uh, internet marketing industry, the, you know, websites, all this stuff is all, all changing all the time. And I think that's, um, you know, but even then like new tips and tools on how to run a company more efficiently. And now we have the whole offshoring of people that can happen, which is a whole different thing than maybe 10, 15 years ago. I mean, I know it still existed then, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is today. And I think those are all critical pieces as well. And if anyone wanted to reach out to you, maybe someone that was looking for a speaker or someone that was looking for someone to help with business development for a law firm, what's the best way to connect with you? They can either find me on LinkedIn because I have a LinkedIn profile or they can contact me at charlasbizcard.com, which is a digital business card that will then connect you uh, with me by text or email. Okay. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Dream Plan Stark Roast Show. I appreciate it. I appreciate your time and your expertise. 
Well, thank you for the chance to, to talk with you. I, I've really enjoyed it, and I'll look forward to talking with you further uh, over time. And if anyone has any questions for me, they know how to find me. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on the Dream Plan Stark Row Show. Again, my name is Allison Turner. I am the host. If you have any questions for me, I do love working with new businesses and people just starting out in that world of entrepreneurship. Please reach out to me on my website at dreamplanstartgrow.com, or you can send me an email at success at dreamplanstartgrow.com. I do offer a complimentary 30-minute consultation, so I'm happy to meet with you, brainstorm, and see how I may be able to help. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you again next time. Thanks for tuning in to the Dream Plan Start Grow podcast with Allison Turner. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Join the Dream Plan Start Grow community by following us on Facebook or Instagram at Dream Plan Start Grow. See you in the next episode.